Welcome back to Season 3 of Summer Reading with the Deals. This is Episode 7. Uh, we're talking about the Brothers Karamazov by Fyodor Dostoevsky. I'm Adam Deal, and this is Whitney Deal. Hi. Um, and we're talking about the women in the novel. So, um, probably not the first thing you would think of when you think of this novel. Uh <laughs> As we're on episode seven, we didn't think of it first either, but I thought that it would be a great episode to do by itself um, just because the male characters are so much the focus of this novel that, in a way, the, the female characters kind of get short, sh- short shrift, short, short shrift, um, they get short changed, um, and yet I really feel like the female characters are just so essential for every single male character. And uh, really, we've only just scratched the surface of, of all the ones that we've talked about. So uh, I'm just going to name the ones we've even mentioned, and then we'll just go from there. So we've talked about uh, Dimitri's mother very briefly. We've talked about um, uh, Ivan and, and Alyosha's mother mo- a little bit more in depth. We've talked about stinking Lizaveta, who is Smerdjikov's mother. Just briefly, and then of course the the three main, four main um, women in in the course of the story are Katerina Ivanovna, and then Grushinka, and Madame Kol- Kol- Koklakov, and her daughter Lise or Liza. Um, there are other characters as well, but those are really the four main ones that we're going to talk about. Um, just because those, those I think, are the most consistent throughout the novel. Uh, we're also going to do an episode coming up next after this one called The Minor Characters. And I thought we might talk about like Mar- Marfa Ignatievna, um, who is Grigory's wife, um, and maybe, maybe, maybe some other female characters um, on that episode. But, but this one's going to be our, our, our central focus uh, on, on the main female characters. So why don't you just, just get us started on, like, which which female character uh, made the biggest impression on you when you were reading it? You know, of all the ones you mentioned, they all make a, a big impression for characters who in some ways don't have a lot of um, screen time. To, I think to some extent I was struck by the tendency to to be kind of hysterical that some of these women seem to have, um, or to be just changeable, mercurial. And I was kind of put off by that because that it's just a stereotype about women, you know, that is not to say that there's not some truth in it too, that women have these mercurial mood changes or emotional ups and downs or something like that. But it did seem striking in these women and I felt like maybe it was a lack of um I don't not not a lack of depth because the characters are very complex but um just a maybe something of of a lack in the female characterization but then the more I have engaged with this book and read it and thought about it there are definitely male characters who also become hysterical. So it's not like it's relegated just to women. Um, but I would just say that the female characters who are important in this work do seem like, okay, Madame Koklikov and Lise are both 
teetering on the edge of hysteria so often. Um, and Katerina Ivanovna, too, even though I think we're supposed to understand that her general demeanor is poised and, and powerful and a self-assertive, what she's actually doing in the actual book a lot is like falling ill from a nervous disease and being in bed and unconscious or breaking down on the stand and doing something she had resolved not to do. You know, the things she's actually doing seem to betray her normal character. And I think similarly with Grishenko, where like her normal character seems to be very manipulative or like in control of the situation. But then we are seeing her in these moments of great vulnerability and passion and hysterical emotion. So um, you bring a good point about like being poised and being hysterical and those being kind of the two options for women, um, maybe more generally in that time, but, but certainly specifically for our case in this novel. Um, and I think that the, 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 the um, concept of like a woman like suppressing her hysteria to the point of being like just almost um, like n- not emotional at all or, or a woman completely embracing hysteria and being uh, almost just being a nervous wreck all the time. I think those are the two extremes we see in this novel. Um, we don't see anyone that's just kind of like managing emotions. Like, I, you know, I use the word hysteria just because that's, I think that that's an appropriate word for this novel. It was very much the thought process of this time that women could be um, affected by their, um, I, just lo- I just lost this, their, their uterus, right? That, like that's where the hyster- hysterectomy uh, removal of the uterus. So um, that that idea that like almost like the way that you trust your gut, it's like you know the the thought process in this time was women would trust their their you know reproductive organs um, and, and and like fall prey to it. And I, you know obviously that that is a very limited way of thinking of women. Um, but at the time, that's what a governing philosophy was for understanding women. Um, I think a more appropriate way to think about the women and their emotional states and their behaviors and their decisions and their mindsets in this novel is just to remember who are the men that are in this novel. Um, you've got Fyodor Dostoevsky. You have Fyodor Dostoevsky writing this novel. <laughs> you have Fyodor Pavlovich who is constantly surrounded by women who want to be around money and who don't mind being around, like, just degrading, um, you know, situations. Like, how many women do I know that would go to an orgy? Not very many, you know? I mean, I'm not saying, oh, that makes me a, a good person. I'm just saying, like, of the women I know probably not one of them would be caught dead at, at, at an orgy or being part of a harem of a man. And so um, that's just something to remember about, like, e- even just one of the characters is, like, this is someone who doesn't feel very comfortable being around the kind of women that might be in a Charlotte Bronte novel. <laughs> I imagine that's part of the appeal of Grushenka for Fyodor Pavlovich. He gets so obsessed with her 
and Cosmer's little chicken and is thinking about actually marrying her, yada, yada. But I th- she's on this um, borderline between a respectable woman and a, a non-respectable woman. Like, she is a kept woman, you know, is the, the mistress of this um, merchant Samsonov. But she... The sugar baby of uh-huh. a sugar daddy. But she seems to also be an independently wealthy woman in her own right by this point. And she um, doesn't seem to have an actual sexual relationship with Samsonov at this point. And she does not just like willy-nilly randomly have those relationships with other people either. She's not going to orgies, you know. So she is a fallen woman. Um, but... She- but explain what... To what degree do we know that and what 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 does that mean? As far as I can tell, she got seduced by that Polish, you know, guy. The original man that like like spurned her and, yeah. and she re- references him later in the novel. When she's 17 years old, she gets seduced by this. She says back then he was like merry and fun and made her laugh and sang songs to her. She got kind of swept off her feet by this Polish guy. Um, it sounds like they had a sexual relationship and she was expecting that he would marry her and he married someone else and left her and it just kind of broke her, like ruined her reputation probably, but also just kind of broke her. And then she became the, it sounds like it's pretty well accepted even by someone like Dimitri who kind of idolizes her that she did have a sexual relationship with Samsonov originally, but now it's kind of cool. I mean, he's he's old and like sickly and. Oh, you're talking about yeah the, the with Samson, not the, the merchant. Patron. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's still supporting her, but they're you know he's like about to die. He gets really sick the day that Dimitri goes to see him. He gets so angry at Dimitri that he gets really sick and like has to call in the doctor. So he's you know he's really elderly. So she, at this point, is just basically, everyone knows she's that woman, like a kind of woman you wouldn't, if you're a nice young lady, you wouldn't want to hang out with her or something because it might ruin your reputation. But still, other people will go visit her and don't seem to feel like it's going to ruin them to visit her, you know. Like Rakitin, I know he's related to her, but he's like at her house all the time. Um, It seems to me like she's in somewhat of a middle ground to some extent, where people will sneer at her and turn their nose up at her, but she's not actually, like, in this wild crowd that Fyodor Pavlovich seems to have cultivated at his house. And she's above socially, like, the um, peasant girls and gypsies that they go hang out with at Mokro. They show deference to her. Mm-hmm. Um, she's not on their social level. Yeah, I think about, like, the, the women that would be at the parties for Jay Gatsby, like... Those women are like the the peasant girls and gypsies that Whitney's mentioning. That he wants Daisy to to find <laughs> to find gay to find you know in, in the classic meaning of the word to find like just this is hilarious and fun and merriment mm-hmm. all the time. That's such a good comparison. I'm just gonna throw that in that the Gatsby parties and the little sprees that um, Dimitri has at Mokro are, are so similar. Yeah, it's interesting how much American literature can intersect with this this novel for, for it being A, Russian, and B, you know, just really like 
I don't know how much Dostoevsky would have read of American Lit by the time he died. Like Poe, he he likes, oh, he likes Poe. Edgar Allan Poe. So so, <laughs> That's all so I know. he did read some of it, but you know, really like the 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 heavy hitters for the most part of American literature hadn't even really written their novels by the time he died. So um, obviously there were some huge, you know, huge, um, hugely successful or hugely influential things uh, happening in the in the 19th century and even in the 18th century of American literature. But, um, you know, for the most part, it seems like he is influencing rather than being the influenced. Um, but, you know, I mentioned this uh, about Grushinka on one of the other episodes. I, I see her as a Brett Ashley from The Silence Arises by Ernest Hemingway. Um, she is someone who was was like basically gave her emotional uh, future to this person and then he said he didn't want it. And so uh, Brett Ashley's uh, like first love died in the war and then she marries Lord Ashley and then she you know, is getting divorced from him and trying to marry Mike Campbell and all the, all the while Jake is in the picture somewhere, Jake Barnes. And I think that um, there's just such a, uh, 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 an overlap or a comparison to be made between Dimitri and Grushinka and Brett Ashley and Jake Barnes. Like, there's this, like, will they, won't they, is it even possible for them to be together? Um, and And it's clear it's not good for either one of them to be together. Like, there's there's <laughs> that kind of, like, well, if these people get together, they'll make two people unhappy instead of four people. But um, at the same time, I do think that Grushinka has, I don't know, I think it's partly because she's younger. Like, Grushinka's only, like, 23 or 24, I think. I, yeah, I think it's been five years since... She was 17, and the yeah, Polish yeah. man left her. So she really is, like, if if we're talking about kind of, like, the prime courting season to get married, like, it, I don't know about Russia in particular, but in the 19th century, you would debut, you know, be a debutante somewhere in the, like, 18 to 22 range, and then it was, like, countdown to, to 25. Like, once you got to 25... You know, you you were new old stock, um, to borrow a a eBay phrase, um, but but that's part of what's going on with Grushinka is like she she is um, she's not submitting to that being her her prescribed fate. She is a, an independent businesswoman. She is buying up debts for other people to repay her. Um, and, and like Whitney mentioned in one of the other episodes, Fyodor Pavlovich tries to sell her Dimitri's debt, right? Yeah, that seems like what's happening. Or like maybe he already has, and then he right, wants her to right. call it in. Yeah, He's trying to convince yeah. her that she should call it in. So, so she is a very shrewd person. Um, and so I think that, you know, like as we're thinking about, like what are the roles of women in this novel, I think that... Um, one of the things to remember is like what kind of women would would these men interact with a lot, and so we talked a little bit about Fyodor Pavlovich. Dmitri 
is not the same as Fyodor Pavlovich. There's some overlap, but it seems like he is not the kind of person that wants to have a harem of women around. He wants to have... I really think he's one of these, like, he thinks he needs a Katerina Ivanovna to kind of, like, kick his bottom uh, and whip him into shape. And, like, basically he needs, a uh, you know, that, like, angel and demon or, you know, whatever that that um, paradigm is. I think that, I think he thinks he needs, he needs someone to be his moral superior, Right. And he even puts Grushinka in that category, even though it's less obvious why, because she's not like a typically chaste, respectable young lady, you know, who holds herself with noble bearing, all that stuff, the way that Katerina is. But I think that's part of, of the appeal of Grushinka, probably for father and son, is that she still seems to have this like dignity and self-respect and... um there's just something about her that's like a little hard to get and inaccessible, but she also seems like she wouldn't judge you harshly because she's got her own past. And when she and Dimitri finally like come together and are like, I love you. I love you too. Something about just the energy between the two of them reminds me of a Drake song. (laughs) Um, You know, like, like take care or, um, Hold on, we're going home, or one of those songs where it's like, listen, I know deep inside of you is an angel, and I'm going to take you far away from here, and then you'll get to be the angel you've always been. And their their suggestion at the end of the novel is to go to, go to America, <laughs> which is just... And he's know, like, we would know. both literally die if we had to live in America. Yeah. We could not stand it because we're Russian to our core. It's like, I actually think, that it's possible that Russia and America are, are like kindred spirit nations in certain ways. Um, and in fact, um, the a work that we read that was uh, comparing Dostoevsky to Flannery O'Connor that we read for last summer's podcast. Um, Give the Devil His Due. Mm-hmm. Um, good book. but By Jessica Hooten Wilson. Wilson. There's a an interesting section of that book that talks about what she sees as the intersections between Russia and the Southern United States. But just like super quickly, a couple that spring to mind, um, both on the periphery of Europe, but trying to be part of Europe, but ambivalent about being part of Europe, feel superior to Europe in some ways, feel lacking in comparison to Europe in some ways. Both seem to have a richer spiritual life than Europe did at that point. Interesting. Um, Inferiority complex. Um, Jessica Houghton Wilson really made a lot of that with the American South particularly. Um, So I don't know. But yeah, it might make sense for them to go to America. And so... I think one of the things about Grushinka is she's kind of in a, not an untenable situation, but it's as if she can't really, it's like she's she's caught standing still in this situation where she's like always going to have to be this like businesswoman accruing wealth and and it's impossible to imagine her just settling down, marrying someone, having kids, being a mother, 
eventually being a grandmother, like, that seems impossible to imagine. It's the same thing for Brett Ashley and, and the, sun also, the Sun Also Rises. And, um, you know, I think about, like, why Fyodor and Dimitri are both drawn to her, and I think it's because they are both emotionally needy men, and they need someone like Grushinka, who, like to Whitney's point, who will completely accept them and and not kind of let, like give them lacerations all the time, like a Katerina Ivanovna would, which um, I think we mentioned in the Dimitri episode, like his mother is very similar in the description to how Katerina Ivanovna is, like too proud, too noble, too just too obsessed with her own, like people respecting her and, and seeing her as like better than a Grushinka. Um, and I think that that's, that's really like at the heart of the gospel for just femininity in general is like you have to just accept Except that you're a Mary Magdalene, you know, like like embrace being a fallen woman in the sense that you you're a sinner in order to get the daughterhood that 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 God wants you to have, and um, you know, Katarina Ivanovna is just not willing to break it's like she just wants to see how much she can carry on the like like how much of a load can she bear on her own like if she was a bridge how much of a load can she she, can she bear and um i think that that's that is a, a feminine um desire like to have control to show that you are worthy to show that you're capable um, I don't mm-hmm. think it's I don't think it's limited to women. I think that men can be the same way. But I think in in modern time, that seems to be something I see in a lot of women. And not not to say I don't see it in men, but it's like I see it increasingly in women. I think as women are being told to be liberated and to be independent, it, it's almost like they're testing the, the, you know, the engineering of their bridges more than the average man is because men have been testing that out for, you know, centuries immemorial. Yeah, Dostoevsky makes, I think this is, I think this is right. Correct me if you remember better than me, but I think he makes the point that Katerina Ivanovna is one of these modern girls who, like he phrases it that way, that, um, you know, like kind of well educated and and shrewd and self possessed and like he sees her as a modern type of woman, um, kind of new for Russia. Whereas Grushinka is also self possessed and and intelligent and all those things, but she gets talked about as being a classic Russian woman. And she's like, I want to go back and work with my hands on the land. That's what we should do. We should get a, get away from here and go work the land. Like she has a vision for being a traditional Russian peasant almost. Like maybe that would be morally regenerating for me. But Katerina, you know, she's very well educated. She's very, she's a, she's a modern woman. So I think kind of to your point that, I mean, I think, you know, almost all, women who right now I'm making a broad statement, but I'm one of these women. So I guess I'm just going to go for it. But almost all women who right now are trying to, um, have children and a family and, you know, a full-time career that means a lot to them 
um, especially if you add on being active in a church or a community organization, um, women often are taught from a young age to be very independent and high achieving. And so you want to be high achieving in all of those things. And you want to be independent and not have to ask for help or show weakness in all of those things. And you feel like a constant failure. You feel a constant sense of guilt. You feel defensive if someone criticizes you because you feel like you don't understand how hard I'm trying. I'm pouring out every ounce that I can. I don't have any more to give. How dare you say I'm not living up to what I need? You know, so pride comes into play. Like, I don't think it's exactly the same with Katerina, except that if she had become a, a mother and, you know, if she'd been like an even more modern woman and tried to sustain like a career in motherhood, like you can see her falling into that mode. I I read a, a pretty fascinating sentence. It's from the novel Demons, but I thought, whoa, this is so much like Katya. It's talking about a woman named uh, Maria. So one character is talking to another character about why he married um, a woman named Maria. It says, you married through a passion for martyrdom, from a craving for remorse, through moral sensuality. And I like really stopped with that phrase moral sensuality because that's such a strange concept. But like, okay, clearly Grushinka gave in to just plain old sensuality as a younger woman. And now she's just kind of branded with that reputation. Um, but a passion for martyrdom, a pra- craving for remorse, moral sensuality. It made me just think of the ways that you can be emotionally caught up in self-laceration and trying to create victimhood for yourself and martyrdom for yourself. And I was like, that that makes me think of Katya. And I think that is just... That's another thing that there's a classic stereotype of the, the like guilt, guilting mother that is always guilting everyone around her that she does so much for them and that they owe her more than they're getting. And I feel like Katya could go down that path very easily. Yes. And, you know, to talk to this, the, the, the contemporary woman that you're describing, it's like, well, the, the gospel is a freeing truth. And so it frees women from the pressure to achieve, to be perfect, to control. To, it, it says, let God be God. And I think that that's, like, to, to your point, one of the things that I'm noticing in modern culture is, and we talked about this some on the... Um, on season one and season two of this podcast, I think that especially in America and in the American South, which is our like main culture, there is a belief that women in particular, like, you know, a generation or two ago, especially like white women are the highest possible uh, caste or class of person. So, like, being a lady is the best thing you could possibly be. And, you know, that just that flies in the face of the gospel. Like, Christianity is an even playing field religion. It does not have classes. It does not have uh, rankings in the, in the sense of, like, you know, the 
the Pope is a is a better Christian than someone teaching you know middle school Sunday school at, at our church. It, it says that all all elements of the body of Christ are, are essential for for the advancement of the kingdom of heaven. And so, being like the appendix of the body of Christ might seem less important than being, say, the brain. But you know, the idea of like keeping an appendix healthy. You know, we've heard many stories of people having appendicitis, and it's like if you don't get it treated, it will kill you. And for something that that seems superfluous to the body, it it certainly isn't superfluous when it is attacking the body. And so, um, you know, this idea of like what role is everyone playing? Well, if everyone is adhering to the truth of the gospel and living it and and preaching it, then you never know what impact you're going to have on the kingdom of heaven. Like you might, you might bring more people to Christ than, you know, the pastor of your church or than, you know, Billy Graham or something like that. Um, Because you might bring one person to, to Christ that brings two people that brings four people. And, you know, you can do the, the um, exponential uh, growth there on your own. But um, I think that that's just essential to remember about, the the women in this novel are trying to find their place and Dostoevsky is trying to give them the option of the church like that within the church we are brothers and sisters in Christ and and of course the brothers Karamazov implies a family and so um the mothers Karamazov are, are both passed away by the time of this novel they don't the, the brothers don't have any sisters but I think that Grushinka and Kat, and Katerina Ivanovna are and, and maybe Lise to an extent are the potential like sisters-in-law of the family and so that concept I think is really interesting because that's something that is still being played out now like I, I think that um there certainly is a lot of competition in men, but in a, in a sense, I would say right now there's more competition in women in in modern society because it, it's almost like there's a game of king of the mountain going on, and men, men aren't really necessarily being trained to to try and be the only one on the summit of the mountain to the degree that women are, and and I think it's creating a lot of chaos within femininity to where there's there's this there's a, a much like more societal break happening in in modern American culture whereas in the novel that we're looking at there there's such a personal uh, break in between Grushinka and Katerina Ivanovna like you know I think I mentioned it like this idea of like the the battle for what is Russia going to be? Is it going to be respectable in the world's eyes? Like, is is Europe going to look up to Russia? Like, that's Katerina Ivanovna. Is it going to be the like, you know, the 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 like n- kind of never never like always 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 pursuing but never a- achieved or grasped thing? Like, that's what Grushinka is and and. 
I think that, you know, to Whitney's point about, like, Grushenka wanting to go back to the land and be, like, a Russian woman, I think that that, that is, it, I think that Dostoevsky is creating that, that tension between be like Western Europe or be re, redefined by the, by the Russian Orthodox Church. He seems to be pushing Grushenka into the spiritual uh, category, whereas Katerina Ivanovna never really has like a a, a, a substantial spiritual uh, role in 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 what I what I interpret you know in in her actions of of the novel. Yeah, if you look at the last section where um, Grushenka and Katya have one last interaction, because you know their first interaction is very striking um, because Grushenka seems to have gone into that interaction. Like, I'm going to slyly humiliate this girl. Just kind of for the heck of it, almost. I mean, she's not really going to get anything out of it. She just wants to and does it. Um, but then, and you can see why maybe she it would make her feel a little better about herself temporarily to humiliate a girl like Katya and get the upper hand on her and make her feel stupid, which she does. But they have another interaction, which is kind of striking um just because i think that you see that both at that, this point at the end of the novel both grushinka and katya have some desire to repent for the way that they've been to be forgiven to be better than they've been in the past but they also have passions like we all do and so like the sermon at our church this morning was about um a section of philippians part of what it says is that um, Christ has us already once we've come to faith in Christ, but we don't fully have Christ yet. So there's like a tension there. Right, like we have been justified in Christ, so we, so we have, it's almost like we, we have... Uh, <laughs> We have the the Star Wars uh, figures that weren't ready for the for the premiere of the movie. It's like we bought the figure set, but we haven't gotten it in the mail yet because we haven't passed away and we we're, we're not in heaven. And so we have him. He's our like he's our property now. Like we 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 we've claimed that promise of God, but the sanctification of of like the rest of the Christian life, the run, the race of faith. That is the process of just getting closer to eternal community with Christ, if that makes sense. Yeah, like we won't be snatched from his hand, which is another scripture that was read this morning. But in our experience of being on earth, it's pretty clear we're not fully sanctified yet. And it's pretty clear that we're still just going to give way to our passion sometimes and do things that we're going to regret and have to repent for. Um, and that it takes time to come to repentance sometimes. And, like, Katya doesn't even want to go see Mitya at the end. Mitya really wants to see her. Because I think he he just carrying around a weight of remorse about everything involving Katya, especially taking her money. Um, Mitya wants to see her, and she does not want to go see him. And Alyosha is pretty forceful in insisting that she go. Um, Katya says, have pity on me with bitter reproach and burst into tears. And Alyosha says firmly, then you will come. <laughs> like, he's like, I, I, you can cry if you need to, but, like, you, you're coming. 
Um, and she's like, but what if I meet anyone? Meaning Grushenka. And he's like, well, that's why you need to go right now because she's not there right now. Go. You know, he's so insistent. But when they actually do interact with each other, it's just so interesting because Katya and Mitya kind of like rush at each other in like a, a rush of emotion and kind of remorse. And like, we do care for each other, even though we were kind of destroying each other, yada, yada. But then once Rushinka shows up, it's like their hatred for each other flares up immediately. The, just the jealousy and resentment flares up immediately. Um, and the way it ends... I'll just read a little bit. Um, this is from the section called um, For a Moment the Lie Becomes Truth. Um, it says, Grishinka walked suddenly and noiselessly into the room. No one had expected her. Katya moved swiftly to the door, but when she reached Grishinka, she stopped suddenly, turned as white as chalk, and moaned softly, almost in a whisper, Forgive me. Grushinka stared at her and pausing for an instant in a vindictive, venomous voice answered, We are full of hatred, my girl, you and I. We are both full of hatred, as though we could forgive each other. Save him and I'll worship you all my life. You won't forgive her? cried Mitya with frantic reproach. Don't be anxious. I'll I'll save him for you, Katya whispered rapidly, and she ran out of the room. And could you refuse to forgive her when she begged your forgiveness herself? Mitya exclaimed bitterly again. Mitya, don't dare to blame her. You have no right to, Alyosha cried hotly. Her proud lips spoke, not her heart, Grishinka brought out in a tone of disgust, meaning when she said to forgive me, that even that, Grishinka's convinced it was out of pride. Says, if she saves you, I'll forgive her everything. Um... Yeah, I, I don't know. I just, I I do kind of, even though it's um, very unresolved, I kind of just, again, appreciate the truth of your emotions are pretty hard to get at. And so you might sort of want to be humble and say, forgive me, and also sort of be saying that to be patting yourself on the back for how humble you're being and saying, forgive me and being magnanimous. And it's it's not necessarily one or the other. So... Dostoevsky understands the complicated nature of human motives that we yeah. don't even know ourselves while we're doing what we're doing so frequently. Well, and, and so I have a different translation, but the next little bit after that, so it like all that happens. And then it says, um, no, I cannot punish myself. This is Kat- Katarina. No, I cannot punish myself before that one. I said forgive me to her because I wanted to punish myself to the end. She did not forgive. I love her for that. Katya added in a distorted voice and her eyes flashed with savage wickedness. And there's there's this element of... I, I don't think it's distinct to the women in this novel, but almost every woman in this novel is this way. They... There's something about being around these Karamazovs that just brings out intense emotion. And um, Katarina is just like, I love it that she didn't forgive me. Like, like, like these a- are the people who would be best friends if the, if the situation twisted right. Yes. Because yes. they would respect each other so much. Yes. And so there's that element of like, 
she loves the the um, the rivalry, the challenge. This is someone who is her equal, um, not someone that she has to just like, you know, fight with one arm tied behind her back, metaphorically. Um, but I think that that's you know it's interesting that that's like the second to last scene of, of the novel is is like there's still no resolution. <laughs> there's just this this you know uh, this unending battle between the two of them, and um, and I think that you know I, I just like I said the the Karamazov boys bring out these emotions. Uh, in women, and and I think Dimitri is the one that brings out the most because he's the emotional Superman, and so there's something about being around Dimitri that just, you know, as Whitney said, like the first time she read the novel, she just couldn't stand him, and I, I think that, I like I didn't have that same level of sympathy for him. I think there's something about him being male that brings out these emotions in the females that are around him that are ex- like, like extreme, like, like the most pure, uncut, unfiltered emotions. And, it, and it, I think it even extends to like female readers to a degree, not making a blanket statement. But I do think that, like, Whitney, as you were reading it, did you ever think for a moment, like, Mitya deserves to get to marry one of these two? I kind of like Mitya and Grushinka together as a couple. Um, I think that Mitya is bringing chaos and disorder into these women's lives by his like weird mixed motives and emo- strong emotions and dealing with them and like insisting that Katya come see him and guilt tripping her into coming to see him. Like they have unfinished business, even though he knows it's going to hurt Grishinka if he does that. And that Grishinka, understandably, is already very jealous of Kat. Like the things he does, I'm like, why do that? You're just going to hurt the woman that you. I do think he really does love Grishinka, like passionately yeah. and truly and everything. It's just that, you know, their life just seems like it would be a firestorm. I mean, I think the best thing they really could do is move out to the country somewhere remote and just settle down and they might could have a chance to have a good thing together. I think it's romantic listening to it again recently. I think it's romantic when she like is getting disgusted with her pole, you know, her Polish right. man. And then she, it's sort of starry-eyed when Dimitri walks in the room, you know, and she's like, she keeps asking him that whole night. Once she's decisively said, no, I don't want this poll. She keeps asking him questions over and over. It's just she'll call him over every 30 minutes or so and be like, how did you know I was here? How did you decide to come for me? And so how do you feel about me? There's someone here I'm in love with. Do you know who it is? It's like she's asking him all these little questions, and then she'll say, go have fun. I'm just going to watch you. And she'll just like follow him with her eyes. And then she'll call him back over and be like, tell me again, the story about how you found out where I was and what you were going to do about it. Like she, I think she's just, it is, it does strike me as romantic the way that she's just so like dazzled by how he, she's like, you were a Falcon coming in, how he compares to the pole. 
And also, like, she drinks too much. And we've talked about how in this novel, when you drink a lot, sometimes the truth starts coming out. It's like a truth serum. And she drinks a lot. And I think there's a sweetness in her heart that kind of comes out when she's drunk a lot. Or she starts saying, you know, we're all good and bad. I mean, I just, I love everybody because we're all, we're all good and bad. <laughs> she starts kind of philosophizing. And then, but then she says, um, I want to dance. I want to show everyone how, how I, well I can dance. And she stands up and then she's like, I, I can't, I'm too weak. Dimitri, and she like calls him over and he sweeps her up and carries her out of the room. You know, there's just these romantic moments um, that are written to be kind of epic, I think. Like he kisses yeah. her for the first time. And she's like, you know, kiss me like you mean it. If you're going to kiss me, truly kiss me. <laughs> just, there is a, if if I were watching a film version of this, I would definitely get swept up in their relationship and be rooting them on Yeah. by the time it's in those mocro sections. But you can also tell, you know, they, they're stormy people and they would have a stormy life together, 100%. Yeah. Mitshinka, um, <laughs> shipping. Um, you know, you're mentioning, like, this romantic element, and, and it's it's making me think of Love Island, which we've been watching, season eight. Um, there is an element, I'm, this isn't a perfect parallel, but it's like there's an element of, like, Davide and Ekansu, which I I ship them as Suavide, because I think that that's just, like, the perfect name. I don't think anyone thought of that, but they should have, and if they didn't, well, oh well. But... Um, but that element of, like, when you see them together, you're like, well, they're clearly right for each other. Like, clearly Katerina Ivanovna is not right for Dimitri. And, and oh, and her, she and Ivan together, ooh. Can you just imagine the, ooh. like, coldness when they were in, con- in conflict if they got together? Yeah, there really is only one genuine couple that, that seems like it would be a dynamic couple which is Grushinka and Dimitri. And, you know, that kind of carries us into... So, so I've made the point about Dimitri and, and, and Fyodor Pavlovich. Ivan, I will just quickly say, he really doesn't have any female connections except for um, Katarina Ivanovna, which I guess he's kind of been brought into that drama because Dimitri is trying to get Grushinka instead. And so he kind of falls for Katarina in the process. And, and, and as I've mentioned on the Ivan episode, part of the reason he wants to see Dimitri punished for the crime of killing their father is, I think, a, a jealousy that Katarina Ivanovna will not choose him no matter how badly Dimitri treats her He's just kind of like, I'm a better man than my brother, and she, you know, she she should either choose me or never get to have Dimitri. I was thinking about why he likes her. And, I mean, she's beautiful, so that's a factor. But it seems to me like it's a sort of narcissistic, she's the female me thing um, in a way. Not that it's not that Ivan is self lacerating in the way that she is or anything, but he's proud and superior and holds himself erect as he walks through the world as if he's better than the other people he beats, you know, things like that. 
um, when you meet your your match, so to speak, it's kind of like what is happening with Grushinka and Dimitri too. But you meet your your doppelganger. You know, a certain type of person is like, yes, you know, that gravitates toward that. I think a lot of people do the opposite, which is they they intuitively feel they need someone to balance them. And so they find someone who's got differences. But sometimes you do gravitate toward the person who has got a similar energy as you. But I do think, like you say, it's kind of difficult to have a like intimate, dynamic relationship with someone who's very similar to you, especially if they're similar in a certain like coldness um, or, or gravitas or something like that. Or when like if you ever around those couples where both people seem to be really peaceful and easygoing and they never fight and it, it feels like it's a little static. It's probably nice to be in that relationship, but it's also kind of static. Whereas I will say like Adam and I do not have a, a static relationship, but we, and <laughs> I, I do know that like we push each other to grow as people and, you know, be kind of self-aware. I was, I was just telling someone at work the other day that um, before I go to the gym, Adam will give me these pep talks sometimes where he's like, you know, don't listen to a podcast. You're there to use your body, not your mind. Listen to some high BPM music and, you know, I can make a workout for you if you want. Like, and they were like, oh my gosh, that would be so motivating and like convicting to have someone doing that at the same time. Like it would make me feel bad and probably help me. And I was like, I feel like our marriage can be like that sometimes. And maybe we should just be wary of that, that it didn't go too far, but that we're coaching each other to be better because we're both very idealistic, I think. Um, have high standards for what things could be, what life could be, you know? And I think that, that, I mean, not to pat myself on the back, but it's like that's exactly what a relationship with God is. It's motivating and convicting constantly. And so, you know, as a marriage is supposed to, you know, reflect Christ's relationship with the church, so too, you know, uh, are we trying to, push each other to not be static. I mean, I think that that's, the, that's at, the, at the, the center of a lot of our conflict, but also a lot of our growth, is that you can be better than this, not a you are better than this. It's, it's like you could grow to be that way rather than like you aren't that way. You know, it's, it's, it's I think we... We, I think we try hard to embrace where the other person is while still saying, here's where you can go with that. And I think that that's, you know, as a parent, I I feel the same way with Josephine. It's like, I don't want her to just be 19 months or almost, she's almost 20 months now. But today, uh, 20 months old today, happy 20 month old uh, Josephine deal. Um, you're probably much older than that when you're listening to this, but, um, but that idea of, do I want her to be at this level for the rest of her life? Well, she's really lovely. And (laughs) I mean, she's made a lot of accomplishments and, and, and progress so far, but there's so much more to go from here 
first of all, she wouldn't be able to enjoy this podcast if she was at the 20-month-old stage the rest of her life. And so part of being a parent is motivating someone to keep growing while still embracing the present, embracing you know where she is now, and also showing why going backward is a bad thing. That's what's hard about being in an adult romantic relationship and being challenging and pushing toward growth and all that is how to balance it with showing unconditional love like in lack of judgment. Because I think just too often it turns into a feeling of judgment and a feeling of like, I don't love you as well as I would if you were better. And you don't want to give your kid a sense that I'll love you more if you can prove yourself better or I'm judging you, you know, and I, that makes me think of Alyosha and Lise, right. their dynamic, because Lise is a little girl still. Well, she's a teenager. Right? Yeah. I mean, I mean she's, yeah, like, she's not, I'm not mean literally she's a little girl. I just mean like her mentality to me seems like a little girl in a yes, lot of ways. She's, she's childish. Not, yeah. She's not on, on the brink of being a woman. It was only two years ago that she and Alyosha used to hang out in, I think, St. Petersburg. And they would, like, tell stories to each other. And he firmly had her in little girl category two years ago. So she, I mean, she might be what? Is she 16, I think? No, I think she's, like, 13 or 14. Oh, wow. I could be wrong, but... but She says we'll have a long time to wait before we get married. Yes, yes. She seems, you know... I have more kind of grace for her. She can be very frustrating and, you know, just unstable. Um, but I just have this, like, grace for her in my mind because I'm like, she's a girl still. She's not a woman. And But all is to say, Alyosha certainly has a lot of grace for her um, foibles. I mean, she says some wild stuff. Like, we talked earlier about how she says she wishes she could burn her house down and she hates everybody, you know, like she, she just lets it all out sometimes. And she, you know, is so upset that Alyosha is thinking about becoming a monk and has to wear the monk's outfit. And she's like, Oh, it's just so embarrassing. It's awful. Like, what are you going to wear when you get out of there? You've got to wear something better, you know, but he's very, he just not, not judgmental of her, but he does also push her to be better. So he, he just manages to, to do both. Like, when she's saying that when we get married, I'm going to spy on you all the time and open your letters for sure. And he's like, Lise, you really shouldn't do that. Like, that's um, that's just not a good thing to do to spy on people. And she's like, sure it is. I'll do it all I want to. I have the right to do it, and I will do it. You know, she's just very sassy. And then he's just kind of quietly like, no, still still not a good idea. And then she says, you're right, you're right. It's not, it's not a, a dignified good thing to do. I won't do it, except I probably will do it. <laughs> and he's like, just laughs, and it's like, whatever you want, I don't have anything to hide. You know, just very pa- kind of patient with her instead of coming down with a hammer when she's being a little bit ridiculous. And, you know, Alyosha, like, I, I really like the contrast of Alyosha and Ivan in the sense, like, in, in, in the parameters of what we're talking about with women. I think that Ivan really has no natural way to interact with women, whereas Alyosha interacts naturally with every woman in the novel 
pretty much. Maybe there's one that does interact with him. He's kind of scared of Katya. Yeah. But even by the end, he's willing to, like, challenge her and tell her what she really, he really thinks. And I think that, you know, he is someone who's trying to bring people to reason. He's trying to bring them to their right mind. Because in your right mind, you can see God clearly for who he is. But if you're not in your right mind, you might get horribly distorted in your vision of God. And that's not because God is distorted. It's because your vision is distorted. And, and that's that's a, a sobering thing to even think about. And it's something that, like, for example, when someone's in intense grief and you try and, like, bring up God might have had a plan for this person to die in your life. If they are not in Christ already, they might just run the other way, you know, because you're trying to say there, there's a clear picture for this in God's plan, and yet this person is only seeing static, you know. It's like there's not only is there not a picture, there's no signal at all. And so it is very difficult to come, to, you know, to come to see God rightly, but that's, you know, that's why the Bible is here. Like, the Bible is the revealed, the revealed Word of God to humans, and Christ is the incarnate Word, and so Christ is the living embodiment of the text, so to speak, but he's not limited to what's in the, in the text. It's like he, if, if everything that Christ did were written down, th- there wouldn't be enough books in the world. Like that's, that's how the Gospel of John ends. And, um, and I kind of feel like Alyosha plays a part in all these women's lives to bring them closer to see either their need for Christ in, Ka- in Katarina Ivanovna's uh, sense or or that they are closer to Christ than they think they are like in Grushinka's situation which we're going to talk about the onion and the the Cana of Galilee in the major episode major you know, major moments of the novel episode number nine number nine number nine um but uh I say that because I think Lise is, or Lisa Liza um she seems to be the one that is the most personally desirous of Alyosha. Like, everyone wants something from Alyosha, and I think that there's something about his faith is so pure at this point. Not that it's perfect, but that it's, 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 it's like his faith is in God. And so sometimes the women in the novel want him to bring order to their chaos, and sometimes they want him to bring, um, like, refining to their um, coarseness. And I think that uh, Lise seems to just want Alyosha in, 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 like, like for everything. She seems to want him not just to play a role in her life, but to be her life, if that makes sense. And, um, you know, Dostoevsky died before he could write the sequel to this novel, but I'm I'm convinced, and maybe I'm wrong because I've only read the novel and I haven't read extensively into, like, Dostoevsky's plans, but I'm convinced that, like, the sequel to this novel, they would be married in that novel and that it would it would involve them in, in, in their marriage in some way. 
I, I'm so torn on Lee's. She's a very complex character, almost to the point where I want to say sometimes that she's a contradictory character, but I think people can be contradictory. You especially, know? especially young teenagers, yeah. you know, 12, 13, 14-year-old. Like I think of um, Alyosha saying, he admires certain things about her, and for one thing, she declares her love for him. And then he's like, yeah, okay, we'll get married. Just kind of matter-of-factly. And she's like, seriously? And he says, yeah, I mean, Father Zosima said that I should get married. That's what I need to do. And, I mean, who else would marry me? But, you know, nobody else would want to marry me. Um, and he's like, I think you'd be good for me. You're more uh, high-spirited and lighthearted than I am. And I need probably need someone like that. And But he tells her that she has the mind of a martyr. And I th- it's, it's an interesting passage on the whole. So they're talking about Wisp of Toe, as he's called in my translation. Whisk Broom. Um, Ilyusha's Il- Il- father. Mm-hmm. And they're talking about him and how he refused to take the money that Katerina Ivanovna sent over for him. And Alyosha was you know, so sad that he refused to take the money because he really needs the money. His whole family is just in dire straits. But then Alyosha is kind of analyzing it with Lise, and it says that that is like what they used to do two years ago. He would just come say, like, this happened to me, you know, and they would talk it out. So that sounds like a married couple already in a way, right? Just like, this happened to me. Let's analyze it together. But he says, you know what? It's going to be fine. He needed to reject the money for his self-respect, but I'm going to take it again tomorrow. And once he's had the chance to assert his self-respect, it'll be okay. He'll take it tomorrow. And... Lisa's like, oh, that's such a good insight. You're right. He is going to take it. I really respect that insight. But then she she stops and says, is it condescending to be analyzing him like this? Like we're superior to him and we understand him so well that we can just tell what he's going to do. Is that condescending? And I, I really respect that question, you know, because it's a sensitive question to ask, to say, are we assuming we're better than him? Because we're like, we got him all figured out. We got him analyzed to a T. He's simple to figure out. I mean, it could be condescending. Um, and Alyosha says, no, I I don't think it's condescending because I don't feel like I'm any better than him. And he says, if I were in his circumstances, I'm sure I would behave the same way because the circumstances are affecting him so much. But he tells Lise, that's a martyr's question. And she's like, what do you mean? And he says, someone who's suffered and who's able to suffer would ask a question like that. That's just a sensitive question to ask. And he says, you probably had a lot of time to think sitting in that chair because you know, she's been handicapped, hasn't right, been able to walk. Right. He says, you've had a lot of time to think sitting in that chair. So you're able to think about how it might feel to another person who's clearly a proud man to be analyzed behind his back. It probably wouldn't feel good to him. I think even if someone's analyzing you accurately, I don't know, I've talked about this a lot, but when, when he and I end up analyzing each other, it it hurts to feel like someone else thinks they have you all figured out even better than you have yourself figured out. It just makes you feel small sometimes and like you're you're an easy puzzle to solve and the other person thinks that they know so much more about you than you understand about yourself. It, it just, it can feel weird. And I think she's just sensitive to that in that moment on behalf of um, the captain, I'll call him. So I don't call him by the insulting name. <laughs> yes. Well, I call him Whisk Broom because I just think about, like I said, I think about the Van Gogh portraits of Joseph Roulon. And it's like, I just imagine that, you know, it's like, I don't think of that as, 
insulting. I guess it's like a metonymy, like, you know, part equals the whole. Well, whisk, wisp of toe sounds worse than whip. Whisk broom, though, don't you think? Yeah, like one yeah. sounds like you don't have a good beard anymore because you get dragged around by Dimitri by right, your beard. Right. Whereas whisk broom just sounds like you have a, like a nice broomy, yeah, voluminous beard, like Rulon. <laughs> and obviously, Michael Scott would call him beardy, but um, but you know, I, I like what what he is talking about about like married people having conversations. Not not everyone talks things to death the way that we do, but um. At the risk of, you know, going explicit on this episode, we have a lot of verbal intercourse. I mean, you are listening to us have verbal intercourse right now. And, you know, if you had recorded every conversation we've ever had, just just in, an, in the analytical conversations we've had, not to say the, the other ones, but um, we have probably talked almost... 10,000 hours, maybe more than that. We've been married 15 years, plus we dated for two years and we're engaged for almost a year and a half. Um, We've had a lot of conversations. And, you know, I I don't think, like, like to to that question that Lise raises, like, I don't think I'm ever judging someone when I'm talking about what their situation is. It's, It's almost like I'm trying to, make enough sense of it in my mind that if they were to come and ask me for advice or help or, or just come to talk to me and tell me, tell me what's going on, I could just absorb everything or I could give them clear, valid counsel and that nothing would, like nothing that I would do would hurt them or, or discredit them or demean them um, because that's, it's like that's what I want to do. It's like I want I want to be someone that helps people grow, helps people improve, and and that's because that's that's the essence of the sanctification that we've mentioned. Is like Christians should be iron sharpening iron, and I don't want to sharpen so much that it you know cuts the blade off. Like I want to just be steady. And maybe it's like I stand still and someone else just sharpens against me. And sometimes it may be like I attempt to find someone standing still and like just gently see if I can get that blade where it can cut through a strawberry without having to slice through it twice. There are a few dangers when you're analyzing a third party's behavior who is not there with you. I mean... There's just some inherent dangers when you're talking about someone behind their back about like why do they do what they do? What are they going to do next? What is their deal? Alyosha points out one of the dangers, which is to feel superior mm-hmm. to that person and think, "Well, I would never do what they're doing. I don't care what situation I was in. I would never do that." I think it is just very important to av- avoid that extreme um, to, to keep that in check. I want to keep that in check much better than I do. Like when I'm just talking through, I mean, it, it could be anything, a student, a parent of a student I teach, you know, someone we know from our social lives, colleagues, church, like trying to figure out why did that person do what they did or what's going on with that person to never think, well, I would never do that and, and just push it away from myself. Because Alex, Alexi has the humility to say, 
what do I know what I would do if I was in that situation? I'm not in his situation. I might do right. the same thing. Um, just to constantly like batter that into our heads as we think about other people's situations. Um, because otherwise pride can creep in extraordinarily easily and condescension like Lisa's talking about. Um, I think the other extreme is just to get, I don't, this may be related to thinking I would never do that, but just to get really angry at someone's behavior. Cause you know, it's like you want to get angry with sin to some extent. Like you don't want to just be copacetic about it when there's, you know, sin in the world, but you want to somehow in your anger, not sin yourself and not start just, kind of hating on the person or wishing you could lash out at the person. Or if you get a chance to talk to the person about it, you end up criticizing them harshly instead of being helpful and building up. That happens sometimes when you've been stewing over someone else's behavior when they're not around. Yeah, and I think that, you know, this idea of, like, would a whole novel about the marriage between Alyosha and... Uh, and Lise be interesting? I, I don't know if it would. I mean, you know, maybe if they were talking about a novel the whole time. Um, but, um, you know, this idea of do you want so much, um, like, like, order in a marriage that there's no room for chaos you know, I, I think that the challenge with that is like, well, there are chaotic people around every corner and certainly within families, um, you know, extended families. So, um, you know, trying to create this like perfect orderly family, I do think that you can be a functional family that has disorder. I think that it is challenging to be a functional family. And and so Alyosha is really the most functional person by the end of the novel because he has admitted his need for Christ. He's shown that he doesn't lift, like elevate himself to be a judge of others. And um, like I saw someone commented on, um, I think it's the novel Loris, that the Close Reads people are doing a podcast on right now. And this person was like, I can't take any more. And they just like listed every single thing that's, it's in these novels, like one of them was a holy fool. And this idea of being a, a fool for the Lord, that, that's just part of Christianity. The more you love God, the more the world's going to be like, what's wrong with you? And, and it's like, well, I, I, know, I know God's love for me, and I am just getting increasingly grateful of that as I see his, his refining of my life. And, you know, to Whitney's point about, like, the motivating, convicting um, gym pep talks, it's like, you know, I, I, try to, I try to give her that same energy toward her teaching, toward her exercising, toward her just, like, like personal growth of, like, like liking to read things or whatever, um, toward socializing with other people, toward being involved in the church, toward her parenting, obviously, and, and, and certainly toward her, you know, her, her role as a wife. Um, but that's because I love her. 
and that's you know I think that 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 is just in the in in the element of unconditional love is not a I love you so much you better not change it's a I love you so much that I will t- I will wait forever for you to grow because I know you I know you will and 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 you know God gives us that option to grow into Christ and I think that um Lise is just like she she is getting out all of her um her energy against it in in the process of this novel such that like she could be in a place where she could be like a Proverbs 31 woman you know by the time the sequel was written which hopefully Dostoevsky has written this and many more sequels in in heaven but um that idea of like like her resistance and, and and like some of the things that make her so extreme one of the things that i caught as i was rereading the beginning uh the um the the uh, se- the seminary i mean the um the monastery section um it says that madame kolkakov is still quite young she's like in her early 30s and so she got married. She had lease almost immediately, and then her husband dies. And so lease is a, is a you know a, a, a child without a father, and and so I think that that's something that's essential to know about this this novel is like, what are all these details about all these people uh, that make them who they are, and and that's that's something that I think I struggled with a lot reading it, and I think if you're reading it either for the first time or if you've already read it one time and you're listening to this podcast, one of the things that I found really off-putting about reading it is, like, you get all of these stories about people as the action is unfolding. It's like, okay, uh, progress in the plot, and then all of a sudden you get, like, ten pages of a story that, that gives some context to a person or something that happened which someone retells, which is never as exciting to read as, as reading it as it's happening, if that makes sense. Like, for example, Dimitri, um, you know, beating up Whisk Broom, like beating up Ilyusha's father would have been a really interesting thing to, to read in the moment, the way that it is when he beats up his father. Like, it's, 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 it's shocking. It's, it's, it, it, it's like you read it fast because it's, it's happening as you read it, whereas when you read it and it's, it's already happened, it's like, do you really need to tell me like exactly what color the, the leaves were on the tree? Like, you know, every detail that you get it is like, gosh, I wish this story would end so we can get back to like the present and and like the progress of the novel. And yet, I think that that's that's part of what. Dostoevsky is doing especially with the women is like showing what has made this woman the way she is now and and Lisa is in a way sort of mysterious because you don't know that much about her except that her dad died and that she's been very ill and that you get to know her mother well I think and being raised by that mother I mean Lisa I think just Lisa would have she has a divided nature and has would have a lot of hurdles to overcome in order to have a 
like a, a stable, thriving, just peaceful marriage with Alyosha. There's like a worldliness coming from her mother, and you see that with Lise keeps laughing constantly at the fact that Alyosha is a holy fool, I guess you would say, and that he is in a monk's robe and all of that. She she doesn't respect that. You know, she she does on some level, but she can't help laughing at it at the same time. Um, and she's, you know, like peeping through doors and eavesdropping. I mean, there's just, there's a very, a real lack of dignity um, or standing upon her dignity in lease, you know, that makes her in some ways kind of an opposite of Katerina Ivanovna. But yeah, she... She's been raised by this mother. There are several times that are so funny to me when, and also so annoying at the same time, when Madame Koklikov will be like, Lise, stop screaming! And then she'll be like, oh, that's me screaming. <laughs> Sorry, that was me screaming. Like, her mother is just freaking out all the time. And Lise sometimes also freaks out. But... A lot of the times that we hear about Lise going into hysterics, her mother is saying that she was hysterical, and I just don't trust her mother. Because when we actually see it in action, it seems like Lise is making jokes at her mom's expense a lot, and then she's getting like annoyed with her mother for being so frazzled. Like when Alyosha comes in with the bitten finger, and Lise it's like, Someone gets some gauze, someone gets some ice. You know, she kind of takes control of the situation. And her mother's like, oh, dear. Oh, oh, my goodness. What do we do? Yeah. So all this to say, Lisa's is raised by her mother. So they just that is a lot to know about her, that she's been in the house by herself with this woman her whole life. Yeah. And, I, you know, I think this is a good, like, place to end because really – like we're going to talk a lot about Grishinka on the major episodes, uh, major major you know, moments in the novel episode, um, and Katerina Ivanovna has kind of gotten her her due, uh, <laughs> but really the, the the other major female characters are Lise and, and her mother and, and Madame Koklikov is so dynamic emotionally, and I bring that up because I think I said it in the first episode that. Alyosha, seem, it, this novel seems to be a test of Alyosha's faith around every possible emotional volatility that you could come across. It, and it's all squeezed into like a, a pretty short amount of time. Like I think it's about three months, the whole, the whole like course of the novel, at least the present day. That's why so much of it is reported from the past. True. The way that you were getting frustrated with because it's taking place in a short amount of time. Yeah. And so, um, and, and, and it's like, I do, I do appreciate that we get so much context, but I think it's like you appreciate it more when you reread it as I've been doing for, for the podcast, because reading it, I mean, I've tried to read this three times and I made it about halfway through the first time. And then I made it through about like about a third of the way through the second time. And this time, obviously I finished it, but, um, it's a much different novel every every attempt. And so reading it through the first time as, as a, an official, okay, I counted it as read, um, you know, I, I think about, like, who stood out to me. And I think Madame Koklikoff and Lise stood out to me because Alyosha is, is involved with them, and he just, you know, we've been told from the foreword 
or from the author's note that this is about Alyosha. It's it's his novel, and so I can't you know I kind of go into the novel like expecting the people that interact with him to be more important, and yet it turns out that he interacts with everyone, which we talked about on the Alyosha episode. But that idea of like what will a man of faith or a woman of faith do when encountering someone who is in a situation of grief or someone who's in a situation of anxiety or someone who's in a situation of um, rage or whatever it is or, or, or the feeling of like being, being jilted. Like I feel like that's Katerina Ivanovna. She feels like she's being jilted for Grushinka. Mm. Yeah, and like Madame Koklikov is this, she was called a woman of fashion in something that I read recently. She's a woman of fashion. Um, but she is, you know, a relatively young woman, very susceptible to the charms of young men um, and being kind of wooed by young men and given attention. And she's also very susceptible to the winds of whatever ideas she last heard. There are times when she is like, oh, my goodness, Father Zosima, his miracles, can you believe it? Oh, I, you know, they're gonna. this is going to change my life. And then the next minute she's being moved by ideas that she's read about in fashionable novels, like current social ideas. She is influenced by the ideas of the, the Bernard-type figures, and she kind of parrots those when they're talking about the trial. Like, oh, Metya's definitely guilty, but he couldn't help it, could he? I mean, really, he, there's no such thing as crime. It's just a, his background and, you know, his environment. She she parrots those ideas. At one point, she says that as a mother, she is very interested in female emancipation and female empowerment. And she mentions writing to a, a well-known author to tell him, that, you know, as a mother, she appreciates everything he's doing to fight for female empowerment. Like She's just blown around by the winds of whatever yes. ideas she hears last. So he, Alicia has to exert a lot of patience. I think everyone who is involved with her has to exert patience with her. Lise doesn't actually give her very much patience, but she requires a lot of patience. She babbles right. on, she changes her mind mid-sentence and doesn't know what, she contradicts herself, doesn't know what she's saying. Kind of sounds like uh, Mrs. Bennett on Pride and Prejudice. Yes. Um, you know, I, I went back and read the the woman, women portion of the, the monastery, um, and this is on this is in the chapter A Lady of Little Faith about, about Madame Kolkakov. And, and so she just talked about um, just like where does faith come from? And she says, um, though I believed only when I was a little child mechanically without thinking about anything, how can it be proved? I've come now to throw myself on your, at your feet and ask you about it. If I miss this chance too, then surely no one will answer me for the rest of my life. How can it be proved? How can one be convinced? Oh, miserable me. I look around and see that for everyone else, almost everyone is all the same. No one worries about it anymore, and I'm the only one who can't bear it. It's devastating, devastating. And then Zosima says, no doubt it is devastating. One cannot prove anything here, but it is possible to be convinced. And she says, how? By what? And he says, by the experience of active love. Try to love your neighbors actively and tirelessly. The more you succeed in loving, the more you'll be convinced of the existence of God and the immortality of your soul. And if you teach complete selflessness, sorry, if you reach completely selflessness in the love of your neighbor, then undoubtedly you will believe 
and no doubt will be even will even be able to enter your soul. This has been tested; it is certain. And then she says, "Active love—that's another question. And what a question! What a question! You see, I love mankind so much that would you believe it? I sometimes dream of giving up all—all all I have, of leaving lease and going to become a sister of mercy. I close my eyes, I think and dream, and in such moments I feel an invincible strength in myself. No wounds, no festering sores could frighten me." I would bind them and cleanse them with my own hands. I would nurse the suffering. I'm ready to kiss their sores. And that portion really reminded me of Dimitri's like mm-hmm. will to serve God in the end. And and I think that there's something about that. And and it's like what do you do with it? Do you just say that you want to and then abandon it? Or do you say that you want to and you do it? Or do you say, I will not do it, and then you end up doing it? And it makes me think about the, the parable of the two brothers, which <laughs> is a great example of backhanded love, if you will, and I will. Um, the parable of the two brothers is uh, a father asks his two sons to do the work of, of the field, and one of them says, I will not. And he comes back and he does it. And the other one says, sure thing, Dad. And then he doesn't. And then Jesus says, which one of the two did the will of the Father? And the Pharisee that's listening to this has to say, well, the one that, the one that did the work. And, and Not the one who put on a good attitude. Exactly. Yeah. And, and so, you know, I think that that's something that, I mean, it's just, it's, it's amazing to think, like, Gosh, the Brothers Karamazov is such a simple title. It's so obvious and straightforward, and yet it it has so much to it. It's like you could think about the prodigal son and his brother. You could think about the two brothers that I just mentioned. That there are all all these like examples of brothers in in the Bible: Cain and Abel, Josh, uh, Jacob and Esau, like like jo- uh, Joseph and his brothers. Like all of these stories that involve family relations, and and so here is this, in a way, parable, and you know, just like in many of Christ's parables, the females are not the essential characters. That doesn't mean they don't matter. And I think that, you know, that this episode, as we've been talking about the women of this, this novel, I think that this novel has a tremendous amount to say about womanhood and femininity and, and motherhood and sisterhood and daughterhood and, and, and um, how, you know, how to be a woman and how not to be a woman. And yet I think it's, it's really, you have to start with how to be a person. And if you have that idea of like, I can judge other people, well, you're going to, you're going to go against the design that God has given, which is to say, God has justice in his purview. And when we try to say, oh man, that person's a fallen woman. It's like, well, <laughs> every person sins. Every person is guilty before God. And the ones that get to God in eternity are the ones that admit it and put their faith in the redemptive blood of, of Christ on the cross. And so 
here in this, you know, in this episode, we talked a lot about the women, and I think that Madame Kolkakov is a good example of the like talks a big talk, um, but she she talks a big talk more than anyone else in the novel, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say every minor character in this work, every situation described in this work, um, is exploring aspects of some of the key ideas in the work, and one of the key ideas is active love it leads to belief um firms up your belief in god and i think a a very very key idea in this novel is that it's better to give one onion in an actual act of love than to daydream for years about what you could do for humanity that would be big and heroic um madame kokolkov for example um likes to give people a career advice. Like how she tells Dimitri he should go to the gold mines. That she's yes, gonna, and yes. hasn't had an epiphany that he belongs in the gold mines. And he he says, I really need money. Right. Three thousand rubles. That's the the uh what parent when his child asks him for bread will give him a snake. He's like, I, I desperately, you could save me by giving me money. I really need money, 3,000 rubles. And she's a wealthy woman. She right. probably could get 3,000 rubles if she wanted to to give him. And um, she says, no, I never lend money. Um, good way to ruin friendships, which is, to me, the kind of thing you tell yourself to make you feel like you're doing it on principle instead of out of you know, greed or weariness or something like that. But she doesn't do anything for Dimitri at all, but she pats herself on the back like she's done something so wonderful for him by just telling him a thing to do. Um, Like she's been a wonderful, you know, self-sacrificing mentor. And that's just, even for Lise, she seems to kind of, expend a lot of fretfulness over Lise and Lise's condition, but it it doesn't feel like either one of them know how to love each other in a self-sacrificing way at all to me. And I think that, you know, even though I would say that Madame Kolklikoff and Lise are like the, the, the least essential main female characters, in a way, I think Dostoevsky utilizes them seeming not so important to really hammer home some intense points. And, um, you know, to Whitney's uh, insight about, like, Madame Kolklikoff is all about telling other people what they should do. It's like she's not about doing herself. She's just about, like, well, you should do this. And um, I can certainly think of people that are quick to, you know, give other people suggestions, but they themselves are not seeming to be looking to follow their own suggestions. And, um, you know, one of the things that we're both trying to do is, like, we're trying to practice what we preach. We're trying, you know, we're trying to say the faith that we adhere to, the faith that, that gives us eternal life is something we want everyone to have. We want We want everyone to have the same relationship with Christ that we have and 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 to even have better you know it's like my you know my desire for Josephine is that she will love God way more than I do 
because she knows him even better than I do. And, and you know, that's, that's my desire. It's not my expectation because I can't, you know, there's no way I can know how she's going to react to God, especially at 20 months. But, but I hope that she's already seeing him because we talk about him in, in the, the house and we obviously take her to church and, and we really try to model Christ's love to her. And, and so, you know, we, we want to see her grow up to, to, to not, you know, cringe at an Alioisha, but to just be like, hey, an Alioisha, like, that's, that's who I want. Like, you know, um, and I think Lise, if her dad had not passed away, maybe, maybe she would have more of that, like, balancing effect because I think it's it's important to remember that Madame Kolkakov is a widow, and so Alyosha is doing what Christ says, which is to like minister to the widows and orphans, and so he he's doing that with them, and you know active love, as Whitney brought up, is kind of the last thing that that uh, Zosima says to Madame Kolkakov, um, and and I th- I've read it before, but I'm just gonna read a little bit of it. It says. Um, Love in dreams thirst for immediate action quickly performed and with everyone watching. Indeed, it will go so as far as the giving even of one's life, provided it doesn't take long but is soon over as on stage and everyone is looking on and praising. Whereas active love is labor and perseverance and for some people perhaps a whole science. But I predict that even in that very moment when you see with horror that despite all your efforts, you not only have not come near your goal but seem to have gotten farther from it, at that very moment, I predict this to you, you will suddenly reach your goal and will clearly behold over you the wonder-working power of the Lord who all the while has been loving you and all the while has been mysteriously guiding you. And so, you know, I think that that's, maybe that's like the most profound thing to say about the women in this novel is they get the dignity of like, like, striving after seeing that love only to see it like like suddenly you know to see it at the end to, like for, for um Grushinka to see it or or for Katarina Ivanovna or for Lise or, or Madame Koklikov and um and I think that that's you know that's just what's so interesting about it and, and we mentioned her already on um on the Alyosha episode but I thought I would just end with um Alyosha and Ivan's mother, that she was a woman of faith and that the best thing that she did was just model that to them. And and it had already taken root in Alyosha as of the time of this novel. And I think it even takes, like, begins to take root in Ivan as the, as the novel, you know, comes to its end. Um, so that's that. Whitney, any final thoughts about the women? No, nothing in particular. We've well, covered a lot. Well, we we can always, you know, retread some ground in, in either the minor characters or the major episodes um, or, or just in the final episode. But uh, until then, we will look forward to talking about the minor characters. So we're going to talk about, like, the boys and Grigory and Marfa Ignatievna. Um, Probably Rakitin. Rakitin, yeah, oh, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe a little bit about those people um, who, like Kalganov, who really seem minor but show up at these key moments. Yes. So, so 
we may not cover every single person in the novel, but like next episode we'll cover the people that we really haven't talked much about because they are so minor in comparison. Uh, but we've enjoyed it, and we will look forward to talking to you next time on Summer Reading with the Deals. Bye-bye.